One of my favorite quotes from history comes from somebody who was really a bad actor from a Christian point of view. His name is Julian the Apostate. Isn't that a crazy name? I like saying it. Sounds like a pirate. Julian the Apostate, that kind of thing. Um, but Julian the Apostate was a holy, Ro- no, he wasn't a holy Roman. He was a Roman emperor, a Caesar, who uh, was the son of Constantine, who Constantine had opened up uh, the Roman Empire to Christianity, because before that it was illegal, right? Because they were worshiping the Roman pantheon and the gods, and it was a pantheistic thing. And, um, but Julian came to power, and, the, and he only ruled two years, by the way. This kind of gives you a hint of what kind of ruler he was. But he, he, he came to power, and he, he immediately declared that he would be public enemy of Christianity, and he would get Rome to go back to the paganism of the gods of Rome, Roman pantheon, and all that. And um, one of his letters, he wrote to a friend early on about one of his greatest frustrations about Christians. Look at this. He says, atheism, that is Christian faith, because they deny the gods of the, um, of the you know, Roman Empire, the, the Roman pantheon, like the Greek pantheon. Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. So there had been several plagues in Rome. And the, 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 the pagan priests had run away and left town. The Christians had stayed and taken care of people even though they are in danger of being sick and dying. And they buried the dead and that sort of thing. So they, they, the Christians had done that. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. In other words, the Christians who are the Galileans, because Jesus was the Galilean, they care for whether the Christians are not. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. In other words, what is it about those stinking, godless Christians who act as such good people and everybody sees them as good people and they look at us and we stink? You know, what is that? Now, Julian wrote this, you say, well, what, what's this got to do with Philippians and Vision Day at Eastridge Church? Well, here's what it's got to do with it. Julian said this about 300 years after Paul wrote Philippians. Paul wrote Philippians in 50 to 60s AD, somewhere in there. Imagine in, in 2050 or 2060 that in America, people were saying the same thing about us as Christians. That's so frustrating, those Christians. They're such good people, and it's hard to put them down. What about that? What, what, would that be, wouldn't that be a vision? I mean, just, just think about that, because, I mean, Jesus said you're never going to get good press if you're a Christian. I hope that's not news. He said, don't expect good press. If you got good press, you probably have a problem. So I'm not saying it'd be good press, and I'm not saying there we're enemies or anything like that who don't believe. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, is that we live in an age And the coming age is surely, the coming future is surely an amazing opportunity to live as Jesus' people. Today we're going to look at who is Jesus and what does that make us? I mean, the difference that it makes that Jesus is who he he said he is and that he proved it and he showed it and then the evidence is that he can do the exact same thing for us as much of a miracle as that seems to be. Because we live in an age when people are trying to, you know, there's this, this disease crossing America and cr- all through the West, really, that's finally made it to our shores called secularism, 
where people are, you know, trying to push God out of their lives. Well, it's a failed experiment. It'll, in the end, it'll never work, for, example, for one thing. And we can't, as Julian said, go back to paganism, because you can never go back and rewrite history. You can only go f- forward, and it's a different animal. It's something else, and so it just won't work. But the other wonderful thing is, is we are primed to see God make us into his people and do some amazing things just like this. Because, not because we're so competent and we're so awesome, but that he is awesome. And he's proved his awesomeness. And he's shown his awesomeness. That's what I want to look at today in, um, in the Scriptures. You can turn there to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, because what we're going to see here today is this very thing, that Jesus, who is Jesus, and what does that make us? And this is the clearest statement in the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he did when he came to earth. There's a section in here, verses uh, 6 to 11, that is just the highest flying, deepest at the same time description of Jesus in all the New Testament. And it also, in the process, on either side of that, uh, that statement, uh, tells us who we are and what God wants to do and, and lays out the vision. On this vision day, when we just had a vision gathering that some people call a business meeting. All right, here we go. Let's look at verse 1. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go through a lot of verses today. I'm going to go through 16 verses. We usually don't go through that many, but we're going to do it, and we can make it, and we won't keep you longer than we did the first service. But um, I'm going to pause and unpack these as we go along, different words. So if you're a person who likes to hear the Scripture read uninterrupted, I'm sorry this is not your day. But if you like to kind of dig into, okay, what does that mean? We're going to do that, okay? Just, just saying. So here we go. Beginning of verse 1. Therefore, if... Okay, i got to stop and explain if. Okay, here we go. <laughs> What Paul is saying when he says if, he's not saying, hey, it could be, it might be, and oh, I sure hope so. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, when he uses if, it's a rhetorical device from his day. He's saying, of course you agree with me. Any sane person would agree with me. That's basically what he's saying. He's not being sarcastic like I just was, but he's, he's saying this is definitely true. He's not questioning the truth of it. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, united with Christ is the way Paul talks about being a Christian. He doesn't talk about being a Christian. He says, are you in Christ? People in Christ, united with Christ. It's the same thing Jesus said in John chapter 15 where he says, if you abide in me, then you are part of my people. So, and stay abiding in me. So if you have any encouragement in being united in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, underline, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind, underline, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The word only should probably be in there because it's implied in the original language. Not only, you know, it's not saying be a doormat, but he's saying, you know, don't just look after your own interests, but look for the interest of others. But each of you should look after the interests of others. And then verse 5, this is profound. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, underlined, as Christ Jesus. Now, this word being having mindset is uh, another word for thinking. It's a, the, the word for thinking. The way you think. So think the way Jesus thinks. But you, you notice that if you see uh, like-minded up there that I underlined 
verse, uh, the, the next part of that verse, uh, verse 2, one mind, and then you see same mindset. You know, when we live in a world like we live in right now, um, people might hear that. I can easily see how people would hear that. And because uh, we live in a world where people say, hey, you know, don't question my opinion. You just have to tolerate it and accept it, or I'm going to run to my safe room. And don't even ask me a question because you're a bad person if you do. Uh, that kind of world, um, sarcastic, huh? just play with, play with it. Uh, that kind of world, people are going to go, one mindset. Oh, no, I knew it. It's a cult. It's a cult. Stay away. Well, get away. Christianity is a cult. No, it's not a cult. We have to explain. He's saying something far more beyond that, far more wonderful and amazing than that. He's saying it's possible to have a togetherness and a unity with other people because of Jesus, our relationship with him, that changes everything, including the way we think. Doesn't mean we all have the same opinion. This isn't like the, the Borg and Star Trek The Next Generation. This isn't like, uh, you know, Sauron's mind control through the ring and Lord of the Rings. This isn't even like, you know, reaching ultimate clear, like, Scientology, and that flat out is a cult, a mind-controlling freakazoid cult. So that, that's, that's not what this is, though. This is an opportunity of Jesus' people, regardless of how our opinions and that God speaks through one person and then speaks through another person, the body of Christ is like that, that God gets his stuff done if we just simply think the th- way through the way Jesus thinks the way through and then live that way and treat each other that way, the way Jesus did. Put it in a, in a phrase, here, here it is. Jesus' people have a unique way, unique than any other place in, in the country, in the culture, in the, in the world. A unique way of thinking through a thing and then living in that same direction, together. That's what it is. Living together in the same direction. Doesn't mean we all have the same opinions. Doesn't mean everything's, you know, just lock, stock, and barrel. That's totalitarianism. This is as far away from that as could possibly be imagined. What a great example of that is uh, what we just did uh, between services. We had a uh, uh, vision gathering that some people call a business meeting. I'm making a little joke there, but but not really. It was a vision statement. The the budget, the visionary budget, is a vision statement. We don't go out and spend it the next week. I don't know if you knew that. But this is what, I can tell you this from being on the inside. This was prayed over, this was considered, this was hashed and rehashed, what's God saying to us? This wasn't just a bunch of stuff thrown, you know, into this kitchen sink and go, okay, God, could you bless that, please? This is an invitation to join the vision of what God's doing in this church. And let me tell you, we are poised for a vision in the coming years that... It's, it's just blowing my mind what God has put together here. And I'm not overstating this in the least. I wouldn't do this every year. But the reality is, is that we have a plan, again, not a plan that we put together, but we believe God is putting together. It's based on our mission statement, but a plan for the next five to six years of where we think God is reaching us to make impact in the city and across the globe and in this world. And here's the thing. Uh, you'll, you'll hear more and more about it as we go forward, but here's the thing. That, but this budget, this, this, this visionary document, let's call it that, is a first step toward living that out, the way of Jesus in the same direction. That's what it is. In fact, it would not have been possible a year or two years ago. Because for one thing, as I told the folks at the business meeting, in case you weren't there, because of the work of Ken Mays and T- Tony Westover and the way God used them, we've got our mortgage situation settled. That's, that was signed earlier this year, 2018. 
We didn't have that before. And I cannot tell you how fun it is to go to leadership team meetings without having to talk about the freaking mortgage all the time. Sorry, I used a word you're not supposed to, and some of your households use that word. But anyway, but it's good. And secondly, your giving of your time and your service and your resources this year put us in a position where we can just go a little bit further with the development plan we've got. You know, we'll give you a chance to join in on that too, but go a little bit further. We can begin to make some real serious steps and beat back some serious darkness in this world, right? I mean, it's, it's really great. And by the way, I've been kind of building up to this. You're wondering, well, did we pass it or not? Yes, we passed it unanimously. So it's, it's passed, all right? So it, it's a one, it, that's, I think, an example of what Paul is saying in terms of thinking a thing through and then moving together in the same direction. And then he's able, he's, God is powerful enough and, and, and amazing enough, Jesus is powerful enough and amazing enough that he can weave together even our different points of view and stuff, and, because none of us have it all, he has it. The mind of Christ, as he says here, is what we need. We, we need uh, to, to, to have his mind in us. And, and again, the mind of Christ is something that we need everybody in on. Paul's going to make this statement real clear, but let me just give you a heads up that we need all of us because all of us make up the mind of Christ. None of us has it all. It's sort of like the person who goes, I would like to give you a piece of my mind, but I can't spare any, you know? We can't spare any of the mind of Christ. We need everybody uh, to, 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 that, that God has called to make Eastridge Church their church. To do. And that changes our perspective because it's not just on us. Jesus does this stuff not in individuals, not that the individual is not important in Christian worldview. The individual is extremely important because it's, the individual is, is uh, sacred, really, because it's an eternal being, Christian worldview. But when, when it comes to God, what God wants to do and moving us forward, he does it together. And that's a whole different way of seeing things. It's different than anything else, any political system, anything else in this world beyond that because it's God doing it and he's valuing every human being, but he's doing it through us together, and he's asking us to value each other and anybody that we come in contact with, you see? Uh, this change of perspective, it, it's more than perspective. It's, it really is a different way of seeing things. Um, but perspective my, reminds me of uh, a kind of a humorous story during a very, very dark time in the early part of the 1900s when World War I was going on, and it reached that point in the war when there were so many millions upon millions of men dying in the trenches in uh, Northern Europe. <clears throat> that London was just a mess because they were sending people up into their 40s over there. Imagine that guy sitting in their 40s. Don't, won't take your hands raised, but imagine just, you know, in your 40s having to go over there and just into the slaughter. It's just horrible. So people were granted their perspective was not great. I mean, they were kind of freaking out. And uh, there was a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton who was in his 40s, but he didn't go over there because he weighed three, 400, or 300 pounds. And, you know, he, he just wasn't fit enough to go. But he was a famous journalist, a famous playwright, and he was a Christian apologist. He wrote some uh, uh, defense of the Christian faith because he was an authentic Christian. And he was walking through the streets of London during this time when it was the dark days of World War I. And a woman accosted him on the street. And she said, Mr. Chesterton, all these people are out there. Why aren't you out at the front? And he said, Madam, if you come around the side here and just look at me from that angle, you will see that I am out at the front. <laughs> it's kind of a different way of looking at it, but I mean, that's essentially how what, what, what Paul is saying, you know, in a more serious way, of course, but he's saying, look, 
There's a whole different way of seeing, and Jesus has made it possible for us to do that. But we only do that if we help each other see it together. And then he goes into something that's just so uh, amazing from a uh, biblical mindset point of view. Paul, in these, this 6 through 11, is a hymn about Jesus. It's a hymn about Christ and what he did and what his incarnation means, his coming to earth, and what happened when he did it and what worked it out. But here's the interesting thing. This was probably written, we don't know who wrote it, it very well could have been Paul, he could have composed this, uh, maybe right here, but the indications are that it probably it was written before. Uh, it was something that they knew, they, maybe they had sung it, um, but it's very possible that this is an eyewitness account of what Jesus did in his incarnation that predates the Gospels that we have in our book. So again, there's some serious eyewitness testimony evidence here, okay? But let, let's just read through it. And in the first couple of verses, I'm going to have to stop several times. I'm just warning you. Because if we really understand about how our life and our faith and our relationships are impacted by having the mindset of Jesus, we need to understand this. Who being in the very nature of very nature God, not of God, but the very nature God, okay? Who being, what is this word nature? Well, the nature of God, uh, or the, this, this word nature is the Greek word morphe, which is like morphology, or I'm going to morph into something, or what, what is it that I'm, you know, uh, someone who doesn't need to morph into anything, but it's just that, that it's a description of their nature, of, of who they are. And, and Everybody agrees, even people that don't believe the Bible who study you know, this stuff for some reason. They would all agree that what Paul is saying here is that this, at the very basis, it means that Jesus was a pre-existent being before Bethlehem, which would make him what? God. This, is, this statement I'm about to read here is the strongest statement in the New Testament that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human. That is the strongest statement of that. And, and the very nature of God, the very being of God, he did not consider equality with God. What does that mean? Well, let's read on. Something to be used to his own advantage. Okay, okay. I got to do about a 30-second word study right here because here's the deal. If you ever go to Bible school or seminary or someone ever asks you on the street, how can you believe that Jesus is really God when all those bad things happened to him? Why didn't he just you know, turn it around if he's really God? You know, I want you to be able to say, my pastor taught me well. So this is the key verse in your New Testament for that question. And when you get to it, it's much debated. But if you look at this, it says, he, he did not consider his nature or his equality with God, which he's already stated he had, he was God. He didn't consider that to be something to use for his advantage. Now, I was raised on the New American Standard Bible, which is a great Bible, uh, but they have grasped in here. It wasn't something to be cling to. The nature wasn't something to be cling to, okay? Uh, the ESV, another popular Bible, the English Standard Version, they have that too. But I think the, the, the NIV gets this right because the word actually means not to use something as an advantage to, you know, push somebody else back and get what I want. And think about this. This is the very thing that Paul just said that we should think about, that, that our way of thinking should be not to use whatever we've got to our advantage, but for the advantage of others, right? That's the very thing. And it's the very thing that Jesus did when he was on earth. He didn't create an army, you know, he could have created an army of, you know, wargs or goblins or whatever and just beat the tar out of the Romans. 
Some people expected him to do that, but he didn't. He could have forced the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious system to stop it and, and just get the bums out of there and start a whole new thing, but he didn't. Could have used his advantage that way, but he didn't. He could have done miracles. He didn't heal everybody. He could have done miracles to so many people that the crowds would surround him and nobody could touch him because everybody would say, hey, don't mess with this guy. Look what he did. But he didn't, did he? Because he wasn't going to use his godness for his own advantage. Now, that's exactly what Jesus did. And the first part of verse 7 goes on to explain it a little bit more. He says, rather, he made himself nothing. Okay, we got to talk about that. What does that mean? It literally means to empty oneself. But I want you to notice, first of all, the word he, the pronoun, is at the front. And it's in the front in the original language too, which means this emptying, whatever it is, this making himself nothing, whatever it is, is, is his choice. He decided it. And the implication of this statement is, is that this wasn't, when he, the very next line it says, by taking on the very nature of a servant. In other words, this was an addition, not a subtraction. He wasn't subtracting any of his godness when he became a human being. The, the human being was the addition to it, and not a subtraction. And finally, this emptying, or this making nothing. If you want to know what Jesus emptied himself of sometime, just go down and read Isaiah chapter 53 that prophesies exactly what would happen to Jesus and what he gave up by coming here. And be prepared to be shocked and surprised and Wow, if you really take the word seriously, that were written, by the way, 700 years before they actually happened exactly that way, I mean, it's, it's, that's what he emptied himself. He emptied himself of honor. He emptied himself of bodily salvation. He emptied himself of, of uh, respect. You know, he, he emptied himself of being able to, to avoid the cross, all of that, because God certainly could have done that. But now that I've kind of clarified these words that are so discussed uh, among Bible scholars and students. And so Let me go back to verse 6. We're just going to leave the slide the way it is. Go back to verse 6, and, and uh, I'm going to read it straight through with uh, sort of a sense of, I want you to get the sense of this whole hymn, okay? Here we go. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in the human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which was the worst way, most humiliating way in all of history to die. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Notice how it went down, down, down to the bottom, and now it's coming back up, 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 up. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, underline, and that the name of Jesus, every knee, underline, would, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, underline, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me just ask you to underline those words if you're an underliner. Jesus Christ is Lord. Those four words. That was sort of like the password for Christians. Are you, uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, good, I can talk to you. Whew. Right, that's what it was kind of thing. And, and Jesus Christ is Lord 
Even, again, unbelieving Bible scholars will tell you that Paul, being a Pharisee and a student of the Old Testament, if this was written in the Old Testament, it would have all four letters capitalized because it means Jesus Christ is Yahweh. It's God himself, God of God. The strongest statement after Jesus in the New Testament that Jesus is, in fact, God And there's a compelling nature to this, too, because you look at this and you go, wait a minute, as more and more people get infected with this secularism, apparently this is unsustainable. It's unsustainable to push God out of your life. It's not possible in the long haul, not to it somehow that every knee will recognize that he is the uh, name above every name and that every tongue will admit or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That ultimately, everybody's going to do it anyway. So regardless of what the future looks like, that's what it looks like. Because you can't pretend that this isn't really real. And so, so you get a couple of things here. You got, you, first of all, Christians, Jesus people, we can chill out a little bit and trust him with whatever's coming next. And secondly, if I'm a person who's not sure about whether or not he really is or isn't or whatever, why not do a Check it, checking it out right now instead of waiting until it's too late. Because what if it's possibly true? And finally, for those of us who are Jesus people, do we live this way? If, if it became illegal to be a Christian, quote-unquote, a Jesus follower, that we were one of Jesus people, kind of like Peter around the fire at the trial, if, we, if it became illegal and they brought us into court, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Because he really, really is Lord, that we believe that. And, and, and that's true in any age. And really, in any age, here's the thing about Jesus' people. Jesus' people are extremely interested. They are extremely interested in riding in his wake. He hasn't even asked us to plow ahead into the future. No, he's just asking us to ride together on his coattails, ride in his wake because he's already cut a swath through the world by coming to the earth. And that's what Paul's trying to say is, look, this isn't on you and me. This is on him. And, and so, you know, ask yourself, are you yourself um, compelled? Are you, that's the only question really to ask. Are you compelled to follow Jesus along with Jesus' people in his wake, not alone, not by yourself, but, alone, but together. You know, this whole together thing, Paul's about ready to really amp it up, and I'll show you in a minute. But before we get there, remember back in verse 1, it said united in Christ. Being in Christ is the nature of what it means to be a Christian, or be a, being a part of Jesus' people is, means you're a Jesus person, okay? But Jesus made this real clear. Back in the prayer that he prayed up in the upper room in John chapter 17, where he said, Lord God, and he's talking to God the Father here as, as God the Son, and he's saying, you know, God, you know, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be arrested this night. And he's saying, oh, by the way, would, would you help not just these disciples of mine that are here right now, he's praying us around the table, not just them, but those who believe because of their message, who would that be? That would be us. Would you cause them to be so one in oneness and so united together in mind and heart and moving in the same direction? And then he gives the world the right to look at us to decide whether or not he's true. He said, so that the world will know that you sent me 
And that I am who I say I am, basically, is what he says. How about that? That's why this is such a big, big deal. Jesus' people are the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that we all can believe in that. I mean, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, what do, you, what do you do when things are just so out there? It's like, wow, you know, because you know, there's lots in Scripture that I come across that go, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Wow, that's, that's, that's so huge. It almost seems impossible. I mean, I know Christ can do this, but it just seems so possible that we could be that united, you know, and, and that together, and right? So what do you do when, when, the, when you face those kinds of realities in the Scripture? Well, if you're like me, you'll go back and read a children's book, okay? So... Uh, <laughs> One of my favorite authors is a guy named George MacDonald, and he wrote a book that became a play for the Outer East Art House this summer called Princess and the Goblin. Did you see it? Very cool. I read those books. I read that and The Princess and Curdie to my kids, well, all of them, when they were younger, a lot younger. They're, some of them are in their 30s now, so there you go. Um, but, but the reality is, is, is that he, he was a Christian, but not only that, he was a pastor for many years and a writer uh, during most of his, his adult years. And, and McDonald writes this book called The Princess and the Goblin. And if you look at it, you can see little hints of, of what it means to believe, what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of it. And there was one particular scene in the play that uh, grandmother is discussing a, a frustration that Irene, who is the princess, has. Her, her mystical grandmother, who has given her this thread that she says, this will always lead you back to me if you follow this thread. And at first the princess can't see it, but then all of a sudden she realizes what it is. She sees it. She sees what the thread does, and she starts to carry this thread. Well, in the midst of the story, I'm not giving anything away uh, at this point, uh, he, she goes into the, the, the mines under the mountain, and she's, she, she uh, has an encounter with the goblins under there. That's where the goblin thing comes in. And Curdie, who eventually becomes her romantic interest, which I guess I just gave that away, but it's just romance. So she, she gives that away, and, or I mean, I gave that away, and so she, she goes in and she gets him out, gets him away from all that. And, and the way she does it is she takes the thread in, and then she follows this secret thread that he can't see out of the mind, and they get out of the minds, and he goes, how'd, how'd you get out of there? She goes, well, I followed this thread my grandmother gave me. He says, there's no thread there. He says, she says, well, here, touch it. And he there's nothing there. That's a bunch of nonsense. Give me the real answer, you know, that kind of thing. And she's very upset. And, and in, the sh in the show, uh, they, they, they portrayed this, but let me read you from the book, the dialogue between grandmother and Irene when she's frustrated with this. It says this. This is grandmother talking. He is a good boy, Curtie, and a brave boy. Aren't you glad you've got him out? Yes, grandmother, this is Irene, but it wasn't very good of him not to believe me when I was telling him the truth. Grandmother. People must believe what they can, and those who believe more must not be hard upon those who believe less. I doubt if you would have believed it all, at all yourself if you hadn't seen some of it. Right after that, it's in the, in the show, she says something like this. This is how they said it in the show. Believing, grandmother says, believing isn't seeing or seeing isn't believing. Believing's just seeing. That's what Paul's talking about. And so, you know what? We can take a chill pill, and when, get, you know, when it feels so frustrating that people just don't believe in their making fun of me for believing in it, but you know what? We don't need to get angry. We don't need to have hatred. We can have compassion for that, because the reality is that we wouldn't see it either if he hadn't let us. 
and shown it to us. And the reality is, is that, that we can be thankful and loving and gracious to one another because we are all in that same boat together. You know, I know when we look around the room, I say this probably too much, but I know when we look around the room and we go, I would never hang out with these people if it wasn't for the fact that I was a Christian. I mean, because there's something dynamic, but where on the planet do you have anybody that's going to hang out with anybody? Right? There's something transformative that happens when he opens your eyes and you see what's really real for the first time. It changes everything practically. And that's why Paul doubles down. He's going to get very practical about what it means to be Jesus' people, beginning at verse 12. Some of the most profound statement words about what it means to be church, let's call it Jesus' people, and some of the most profound words in all the New Testament, and some of my favorites, quite frankly. Look at this. Therefore, my dear friends, it doesn't really come through in dear friends, but he's saying, I love you guys. I love, love, love you guys. And I will just say, I know exactly what he's talking about. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I've got to explain this because this gets a lot of bad press and it's misunderstood. He's not talking about salvation in terms of eternal salvation. He, the, the word means either physical salvation, but the context here, he's clearly talking about wholeness, having your act together as a, as a person, as a, as a Christian, as a Jesus person, having, your, having it together, having your stuff together. Continue to work at that, whatever part of that God gives you the privilege of working toward. But the fear and trembling isn't like, oh, I'm so scared. No, it's more like, oh, man, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. That's what it is. So it's salvation in the sense of having your stuff together and like, I could never have seen that this was possible before. Thank you, God. That's what it is. But then one of the most profound statements in all of Paul's letters right here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let me repeat. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Is that a miracle? I think it might be. I mean, again, it's back to that, I can't believe I get to be a part of this. Thank you, Lord. It's the whole difference. Paul says, he's basically saying here, you know, it's, it's easy to be complainer. It's easy to be, you know, grumbling. It's easy to have, you know, he's not being, you know, the power of positive thinking. He's really not. He's saying life can be hard, granted. But, you know, everybody can be ungracious. But now because you're a Jesus follower, you have the power not to be ungracious and to be gracious. Try Do that, he's saying. Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Is that possible to be blameless? Apparently in Jesus' eyes it is. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, underlying Shine among them like stars in the sky, if you're underlining. Verse 16, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. I got to go back to verse 13. 
and pull out three words. First of all, God. God is emphatic. It's put at the beginning of the sentence, not just in our Bible, but in the original language, which means this is all God doing this. He's at work in you for his purpose. Paul gets his priorities straight. He doesn't say, you need to really work for God's purpose in your life. No, uh It's God that does this. And, he, and we already know that he's calling Jesus God. He, he's saying Jesus is fully God. So that's it. Works, he said, it's God who works in you. Works as a present active participle. Doesn't that change your life? There's a little joke there. But it's no joke that what the word means. It means he's constantly right here, right now, all the time. Especially, remember the two or three are gathered thing? There I'm with you always. He is present, working for his good purposes among all our different personalities, among all our different opinions, among all our different ideas, among everything else. He somehow weaves it together in this unity that's just amazing. And he's, he's not just doing it so we can be happy and, and, and sit down. He's doing it so he can show us things we've never seen before. And, 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 he's all, and it doesn't stop. It's a duration thing. It, it just keeps going and going and going. And then the word you. He, it is God that works in you. That's a word that is, in the original language, is clearly a plural word. We don't really have a word for you, for, for plural you. We use you for both singular you and plural you. And when we lived in Canada in the early 1980s, um, in Alberta particularly, people used to try and get the plural you by saying, hey, you guys, okay? They don't do that much anymore except out in the sticks in Alberta. But, but the reality is, is that it's, you is plural. He, he's making a big emphasis that this is plural, this is together. And when you look at that phrase, that you will shine like stars among them in, in, in the sky, okay, that you is also plural. In other words, Jesus' people shine together, not separately. Again, it's not to take away from the value of the individual, but it's together that we shine. I mean, because here's the fact. Living the Christian life individually is some task. It's just too much. But when you're together with his people and God, the, the Spirit of God lights us up, it's the most natural and normal thing in the world. It's like, ah, this is what I was made for. That's the vision of Jesus for his people, that that. God and the Holy Spirit would do that. Remember when Jesus said that? He looked at his disciples, and he didn't use the you word that is the singular. He said, plural, you are, not you might be, not you could be, not if you get on your knees and really, really beg me. Nope. You are the light of the world. So of course you're going to look different. Of course it's going to be different. And don't be afraid of that. Embrace that. Have you ever been at a place where you could read your watch because the stars were so bright? I can remember one time. We were in uh, the South Seas. We were in the family. It was on our sabbatical. And we were able to go with the family to uh, Fiji, actually. And we were on a beach at night looking up at the stars. And I could read my watch. Not, I'm not talking about the kind that light up, like, okay? I'm talking about, you know, this before that. And, and I'm, I was looking, looking, um, looking at and seeing just all the detail. Now, if any one of those stars or even a even hundred of them were up there, you wouldn't be able to. But all the stars, it just lit everything up. And essentially, that's what Paul is saying that Jesus wants to do in us in terms of our world and in this place. But it happens together. 
And it's not on one person or one church or one life group or one anything. It's God saying, together I can do this. And I think he's also got in his mind another thing that shows up in the story of God in the Bible over and over and over and over again. Uh, for example, in the life of Elijah, remember Elijah was up on Mount Horeb, and he says, God, just kill me. Jezebel's after me. She's a vicious woman. I can't stand this. And God says, oops, hold it. Not going to do that. I've got some more prophetic work for you to do. Here, do this, do this, find Elisha, and so forth. And oh, by the way, there's 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. I've got 7,000 of you out there. Jesus said the same things to his disciples when he was talking about being a good shepherd. Remember that? He's telling, I am the good shepherd, and I take care of the sheep, and the sheep know my voice, and so forth. And, you know, if I'm one of those disciples, I'm going, I know your voice. But I'm not a good sheep all the time. I'm kind of a dumb sheep. I don't know if they're thinking that. That's Dwayne's extrapolation of the story. But right after that, Jesus says, oh, by the way, I have sheep pens and I have sheep that you don't know about. Just trust me. There's a lot more of you than you think there are. And you're not alone. It's God doing it through all of us. Which is why when grandmother says, Seeing isn't believing. Believing is just seeing itself. That that's exactly what it is. And that's exactly true. And, so, and, it, and you, you look at the, the age in which we live in, and you begin to realize it doesn't matter what age we're in. Jesus is still awesome and still can do this. I mean, yes, we live in an age, but, but it's, it starts to get exciting when you start thinking of that. We live in an age that is sort of historically arrogant, our society thinks that we're better than anybody that's come before us, that we're the first one to get morals, we're the first one to get, you know, what life's really about. We're the, of course, everything's falling apart, but I mean, we'll, we'll figure those pieces out. We're the first generation on the planet to say, you know what, words don't mean what they mean. True doesn't mean true. And so we start flipping the values and the meanings of the words like dark and light, good and evil. We're the first generation to do that. So yeah, it's it's crazy, but in the midst of that kind of confusion and mess, just think about the stars that would shine bright like this. And the thing, the wonder of it is, the beauty of it is, we don't even have to, um, we don't have to take it on our shoulders. It's us together, yes, but it's God that does it through us, right? I mean, think about this. I know this is a bad week to talk about this because we just had a vote in, uh, in our church, and a vote is coming up. And I know it's a bad week to talk about it with the uh, Supreme Gong Show that's gone on in Washington, D.C. this week. Um, and let me just say this, not to make light of anybody's pain. Sexual uh, assault is always, always wrong, and Christians need to stand up against it and speak out for it. Yeah. And so is destroying somebody's life and family when the corroborating evidence just isn't there. Right? So there's plenty of victims to go around, and it's, it's, it's very sad. But that, you know, that could almost make you say, I'm not going to vote. And it's, I'm, not, I'm making the case for voting isn't everything. Don't get me wrong. But can you imagine if the Apostle Paul had the ability to vote in the Roman Empire? I think it would show up in the New Testament. He would say, what are you thinking, you people that don't vote? You know, you're God's people. You're Jesus' people. And if we're going to shine like stars in the universe, you need to speak up with your vote. That's a simple thing. But 
speak up. And you say, well, yeah, but are Christians supposed to vote in a block? No. Doesn't mean we have to belong to a certain political party. By the way, did you know that George Washington, before he left office in his last farewell speech, said, don't make political, pro- uh, don't make political parties in this nation because it'll screw everybody up. Now, here we are. I mean, he, he, and, and, and did you realize that God is big enough and powerful enough that even if we don't vote down the line on every issue, that he can even use that to get his purposes fulfilled? So vote, and I'll give you a little extra incentive, and I'm not going to say anything more about this the rest of the fall, but in November, vote, because you know that very initiative that we started last year on this very day? We signed some petitions to say, you know, the law that they passed in Salem in 20, summer of 2017 and didn't tell anybody that they're going to use taxpayer funds to uh, fund abortions across the state of Oregon. We put that initiative on the ballot. Guess what? It made it on the ballot, and it's coming up in November. And most of us can agree on that. So either way, even if you don't uh, vote, right, be a person who speaks up. And I'm going to call the band out here. And think about what all these things mean. It's more than just voting. It's that God really can and does and will work in us. I want to show you one more phrase that just sort of summarizes all this from another letter in the New Testament. And you've heard me say this before. We don't know who wrote this because the name isn't attached to this particular letter. It's a letter to the Hebrews. I think it's Paul. You know, other people have different opinions. Um, and you can have a different opinion. That's fine but I think it is Paul. Um, and, and, and this verse that I'm going to show you has several phrases in it that are used by Paul in the book of Romans. Slam, there's some evidence right there. So here, here it is, though. Here's what, um, what the writer of Hebrews says about we Christians, regardless of any age. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. So take that, Julian the apostate. All right. What that's saying is, is it, I don't know if things are going to get crazier or not. I have no idea. God knows. But if, if it does get crazier, if Congress gets goofy, or, Or if you're going through a horrible time right now, the body of Christ, Jesus' people are here from you, for you. And you don't need to shrink back. Because Jesus' vision for us is that we would shine like stars in the night sky. Let's pray for that. And let's thank him for our vision day and for the vision gathering that some people call a business meeting. Heavenly Father, And Lord Jesus, thank you for telling us who you are. Thank you for coming and not only telling us what we should be and how we should be, but showing us. And then not only that, but giving us the power by your Spirit to live it out. And I pray that that would be true for our church, that we would go out of here knowing the people that we are. Because we know you better, that we will know what that makes us. I thank you. I adore you. We adore you the plurality of who we are, by our presence and then by your filling can light up this world that so desperately needs it. 
And some of us desperately need your touch today too, and we ask that that would happen. Give us the grace as the body of Christ to surround people who do, and then in turn, when we need it, they'll do it for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being here and for the power of your word today and for the wonder of what you're doing here in this gathering of Jesus' people known as Eastridge Church. We love you, Jesus. That's why we pray in your name. Amen.